If you've been following along with us through this video series in Ecclesiastes, you noticed that we didn't have one for last week. Uh, last week, Pastor Jason brought the message and we weren't prepared to record it. Um, and so we're going to get that up on our website. The audio of it will be up uh, hopefully sometime this coming week. Um, but today we're going to pick up where Pastor Jason left off last week, which is in verse 15. And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 18. And the title of this sermon, as you'll see and come to understand why, is called A Broken World. Ecclesiastes has, I think, proven to be a really challenging book so far. And, and, and not just in this sense. I mean, it's a challenging book in the sense that it hits home probably more than we expected that it would, honestly. But it's also challenging for, for us as pastors in how to understand it and then how to interpret it and, of course, how to apply it in our lives as well. And there's generally just this sense of uneasiness, I think, as we read this book because so much of it speaks to something that most of us feel but rarely say out loud, and it's this. This world is a lousy place to live sometimes. Just truth. This world is a hard and lousy place to live sometimes. And I don't think at this point any one of you would argue with me when I say that because we're experiencing a lot of difficulty right now. We see and we hear hate and we see injustice and we see lawlessness we see bitterness we see vengeance oppression foolishness and it just seems like reason has flown out the window never to return and and that's why i appreciated jason's message last week so much He, he said that common sense isn't actually very common anymore and it's not necessarily because it's being forgotten but mostly because everyone defines what is common in their own way and with their own metrics they get to define that for themselves what is right seems to change with the season depending on where you look or, or, or who you talk to, even. And so Jason's challenge last week to empty ourselves of common sense and replace it with Scripture alone, I think is one that we would do really well to heed. And, and truth be told, despite all of the unrest that's happening in our country and around the world, there actually is beauty to be found. There are people of all skin colors who are joining hands together in a wonderful display of unity in Christ. There are churches reaching out in their communities like never before. And I I even think that there is an underlying thirst for truth and solid ground that we haven't seen probably for decades. And as weird as it is to think about beauty and pain oftentimes dwell really closely together. We we might call them bedfellows. And here's an example of what I mean. After a meeting a couple of weeks ago, uh, Caleb and I were outside talking in the parking lot. You know, we were doing the uh, the Missouri goodbye thing where you say goodbye inside and then you go outside at your car and then you say goodbye for another 10 minutes. And so that's what we were doing. And as we were talking, this thunderstorm started to roll in and lightning flashed across the sky. Just It was just an incredible light display. And we, we were talking, but then... 
when this started happening, both of us just stopped. We didn't say anything. Uh, we just both stopped and looked, and we were just kind of in awe of what was going on. And, and Caleb said what we were both thinking. He just said, beautiful. It was beautiful, but with that storm that came in, and man, it was a, what we call out here, it was a gully washer uh, on a couple Wednesdays ago. With that beautiful storm came a lot of rain, and that caused the creeks to swell up. That caused the fields to flood, and a lot like last year, there farmers have been delayed in putting in some of their crops because of all the water that we've gotten. And so I saw that storm, and I described it as beautiful, but I kind of doubt that the farmers who are trying to get their crops in the field would use the same word for it. I don't think they'd call it beautiful at that point. And so life is a blend of beauty and difficulty, of joy and, and mystery, actually. And we try our best to, to hang on to the moments of joy and the memories of you know, wonderful things. But at the same time, our hearts long for eternity, for something beyond what this world has. And specifically for followers of Christ, we know that there is something beyond this world. And we know that it far surpasses the small and temporary glimpses of beauty that we see. And we know that God is the one who's done this. If you think back to Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, we know that he's done this. It says that he has put eternity into man's heart. We know it. And so we long for something better than this stuff that we see around us. And that's really what I'm talking about here. There are glimpses of beauty in the world that I think we can and we should stop to appreciate, stop and smell the roses, so to speak. But the reality is is that this world is not as it should be. As I've described it before, our world is broken. Our world, it doesn't operate the way that it was designed to. It just doesn't work right. And if we stop and think about it, we have to ask some honest questions about this. Why would it operate the way that it was designed? How could it operate that way? I remember a while ago, Jason was telling a story about a pocket knife that he owned. And he used this pocket knife for a lot of different things. And one day, he used it as a pry bar and he broke it. I think he broke the tip off of it, part of the blade. Why did it break? We know. We know it's because he used it for something that it wasn't designed to be used for. A a knife is designed to cut, not to bend or to pry something. And so that helps us understand that when something is used in a way that the designer did not intend for it to be used, it ends up not working properly or it ends up getting broken. Isn't that a really accurate description of our world right now? There's so much brokenness and there is so much pain and so much turmoil because our world isn't doing what it was designed to do. Our world originally was designed to reflect God in perfection and holiness, but it just doesn't do that anymore. And we all both experience and add into this firsthand because we live in a world broken by the fall as fallen creatures. We know it was there at the fall that all of humanity, and not just humankind, but the created world, were plunged into sin 
and decay and inevitably death. We have departed from God's wise design on how to live. And so there's widespread sin and rampant brokenness. We feel this deeply right now. But you know what? Solomon felt this too because he lived in the same world under the sun. Look at verse 15. Let's, in fact, let's read this text together. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So what does he say in verse 15? He is admitting the same thing that we're admitting, that we live in a messed up world. This is painfully obvious. He says, in my, he describes his own life as vain. He says, in my vain life, I, I've seen everything. He's, he, we've talked about all the things that he's tried to find purpose in as well. He says it's vanity. He says there's a righteous man who, who dies in his righteousness, but then there's a wicked man who, who seems to prolong his life by doing evil. This, the world is upside down, right? Good people die, while wicked people go on living. And our hearts cry out against this. We say, this isn't fair. Where, where's the justice in this? And, and even if we don't have the answers to, to those questions that we just asked, I think it's important that we realize that we are asking them. We're asking, or we're saying, this isn't fair. Where is the justice in this? We are asking those questions. And if we are asking those questions, then we also have to realize that the answers are not going to be found among us. They, they lie beyond us. They aren't going to come from inside broken people. They have to come from someone who is not broken. Someone who is not influenced by sin at all. And the only person that there is, is the person of God. So let's just take a moment here to pause and reflect on this thought. Because it's, it's painfully obvious that the world is broken and it's not functioning properly. And if I talk to a hundred people today, I would bet that a hundred people would agree with me on that, that the world is broken. It's not functioning properly. Something is wrong. And, and if that's true, then why are so many of us, Christians included here, why are we looking to some other worldly thing to fix our brokenness? Let's reflect on that for just a moment. You know, why are we constantly putting our hope in the things of this world. And you can fill in the blank for whatever the thing might be for you, whether it be security in, in, in wealth or in a political party or in your uh, family members or what, in health. Whatever the security is that we're trying to put our hope in, why are we doing that? Why do we think that those things can fix our brokenness? Why do we think that those things can make us whole? They, they can't. Think about it this way. If, if your house is flooding, are you going to go into the kitchen and turn on your kitchen faucet? No. Uh, of course you're not. Water is the problem if your house is flooding. So water can never be part of the solution for that. 
The sin that caused the brokenness that we see all around us can't be the solution to our problems. But this is what we're doing. And it's foolishness. And we're getting frustrated more and more because we're running to answers that the world has instead of the answers that God has. The one who's unaffected by the brokenness. And we, we ask, what can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? What can fix us? And the song that we sing as a church this morning, nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's willingly poured out His blood and given up His life so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. Nothing can for sin atone except the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. As a sinner, nothing you do can fully pay for your sin. Nothing except the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 16 along with me. Solomon says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, this is not meant of true and real righteousness because uh, a person can't be too holy. They can't be too righteous. Jason talked about Dairy Queen blizzards last week, so I'm going to talk about Dairy Queen blizzards now. To say someone is too righteous is like saying that you have too big of a cotton candy blizzard at Dairy Queen. It's not possible. It's not possible to have too big of a, of a uh, cotton candy blizzard. Those things are delicious. It's not possible to be too righteous. Okay, so this is instead referring to a show and a pretension of righteousness. And it's talking about people who think and act like they are more righteous and holy than others. In fact, they may even look down on other people who don't rise to their level of religiosity. I hope that word sounds familiar from a couple of weeks ago. But in the end, Solomon says that, that they will destroy themselves in that. He says, why should you destroy yourselves by continuing in that pattern? Well, how would a person destroy themselves by pretending to be too righteous? Well, think about this. What happens to a person who puts on an act that they're more righteous than they really are? But eventually... At some point, light always overcomes darkness. Truth always wins out. And real lives, real selves are always exposed. So when the lie is revealed that a person isn't nearly as righteous as they've been trying to make people think that they are, their reputation is tanked. And a lot of times they are driven down this spiral, down and down, further and further. And and not only that, but if a person is lying about their true self in order to fool other people, they're headed for destruction because they're clinging to their own righteousness and not embracing the righteousness of Christ that's available by grace through faith, not of works that we have done. So Solomon's question here. I hope it rings in our ears today. Why should, why should you destroy yourself with this kind of behavior, with this kind of act, action and pattern of life? And if I could interject something in here to the end of that question, it would be this. Why should you destroy yourself? Because you don't have to. Your way of life doesn't have to be self-destructive. But the answer cannot be found in something broken that the world, the broken world, is offering. It can only be found 
in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So this isn't permission to be, you know, sort of wicked. You know, we don't want you to be overly wicked, but it's okay to be sort of wicked. That's, that's not what this is getting at here. Uh, if we keep verse 15 in mind, which I think we should, we understand that this is, this is a warning against thinking that since wicked people seem to live longer than righteous people, that you should just, you know, be wicked without restraint or remorse so that you can live a long time. If the wicked live longer than the people who are righteous, well, then just be wicked. That's not what he's saying here. Solomon actually qualifies this at the end. He says, he, he says that that kind of attitude is, a, is, is being a fool. It's foolish. And that having that as a pattern of your life is going to cause pain, and it's going to cause disease, and it's going to cause problems that wear you down that put you in bad situations and ultimately at some point they're going to take you out before your time, it says. Now notice something about verses 16 and 17 here. Verse 17 is is kind of like the, the flip opposite of verse 16. It's comparing and contrasting righteousness versus wickedness. And then wisdom versus foolishness. And, and it's interesting, how does Solomon explain that? He, he doesn't. Yet, right here, he just says, hey, in verse 18, he says, take hold of this advice. Take hold of it. Grab onto it. He tells us to grab hold of this truth. And here's the truth. Here's how he explains it. If you want to say that he explains it, here's how he does this. In verse 18, he says, the one who fears God is going to be free from destroying themselves by false pretenses and unrighteousness. The fear of God. The person who fears God, he says at the end of verse 18, will come out of both of them. Will be freed from the trap of both of those ways of living. I love how Matthew Henry puts this. He says it this way. The fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, is the best preservative from and antidote against these things. For a person that fears God is humble and renounces his own righteousness and distrusts his own wisdom. He fears to commit sin and shuns folly. Now, as it is with uh, much of the wisdom literature in the Bible, it's written kind of in an unusual way here in Ecclesiastes, but don't miss what we're being told. He's very clearly saying to avoid destruction and to avoid living a wasted life, Solomon says that God blesses the person who fears him. If a person fears the Lord, that person will behave in a certain way. It's going to impact the way that they live. So, following Matthew, what Matthew Henry has just helped us see from these verses in the text, I want to I give off five behavioral changes that come with the fear of the Lord. So if you're hearing this this morning and you're saying, okay... I don't want to go down those paths. I want to be uh, steered and guided by the by a fear of the Lord, but I don't really understand that. I don't know what that looks like. Here are, are here are five ways that if you have a fear of the Lord, your life will look different. And if your life isn't evidenced, if these things aren't evidenced in your life, then maybe these are five ways that God is leading you to change based on the text here. And we can see these played out in these verses. And the first one 
the person that fears God is humble. This person is humble. They don't they don't think too highly of themselves. In fact, Romans twelve three, Paul says this. This kind of a person won't think too highly of themselves, but instead he says with sober judgment. They're gonna understand who they are. They're gonna understand that they've messed up and that they're a sinner. They're not gonna look down their noses, so to speak, at other people for doing the same things that they're guilty of. The second thing is that this person does not trust their own goodness. They don't rely on their own righteousness. Philippians three nine tells us that these kind of a person that, that fears the Lord They don't have a righteousness of their own that comes from obeying the law, but instead they have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. That's the difference. There's no real righteousness that comes by strictly obeying the law because you can't do it fully. You can't do it completely. Only Christ can and did. And now His righteousness is given to sinners when they believe. So this person does not trust in their own goodness. The third thing is that this person, the person that fears God, doesn't trust their own wisdom. So they don't lean on their own understanding. You've heard that verse before in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. He says, Solomon over there says that the, the person doesn't lean on their own understanding, and they're not wise in their own eyes, but instead they trust the Lord's wisdom, and they turn away from evil. So they don't trust their own wisdom. Number four, the person who fears the Lord hates their own sin. Now in our house, in the Omis home, we have outlawed the word hate. We did this long ago when our kids were very, very small. And as they grow, we help them understand that we don't hate anyone. We don't hate anything except specifically our own sin and then also the problem of sin in the world. We hate our own sin first, and that goes back to the, the plank and the speck, you know, those piece of sawdust versus the big two-by-four. We don't point other people's sin out. We don't want to hate other people's sin unless we're already hating our own and, we're, and asking God to forgive us and to repent of these things. So the person who fears God, they hate their own sin. Romans 12.9 helps us understand that the person who fears God detests their own sin, abhors hates what is evil and clings or holds fast to what is good. I don't think that you will truly hold fast to the good if you're already holding on to hate or if you're already holding on to wickedness, to what is evil. You have to give that up in order to cling to what is good. And fifthly, this person who fears the Lord avoids fools and avoids foolish behaviors. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4, you can read that on your own time. Maybe afterwards it would be good to flip the here and, and read these verses. Chapter 4 of Proverbs, verses 7 through 16, is all about the foolish person. And it describes them. And I hope that's not describing us. But the person who fears God is going to avoid fools and avoid foolish behavior. They stay away from foolish people and evil in general, knowing that it, it might sound good, at the time, but really, it's destructive in the end. It will end you in the end. So, as we finish up this morning together, I think we have to confront ourselves with these changes and then ask the hard question, does this describe me? 
So think back to those five things. Does that describe you? And here are some questions that I think we can evaluate ourselves. This is the application part of our time together this morning. Ask yourself this. Am I pursuing humility or am I okay thinking that I'm better than other people? Am I trusting my own performance in the Christian life? Am I trusting my own goodness? Or do I cling to the righteousness of Christ alone? Another question. Do I rely on my own understanding in difficult situations? Or do I look to wisdom from God found in His Word? Do I genuinely hate my own sin more than the sin that I see in others? Or do I excuse my sin quickly without repentance while holding other people accountable for their sin? Am I seeking God-fearing people to spend time with? Or do I willingly participate in foolish behavior with the people around me? Now, I believe that how we answer these questions says a great deal about whether we actually fear God or not. So let me ask maybe one more question this morning to evaluate. And this is more on the positive side of things. When you see someone genuinely trying to live this way, uh, under the fear of God, even if you see them stumble and fall sometimes, when you see someone genuinely trying to live this way, doesn't their effort spur you on in your own life? I hope so. I hope it does. I think it should. When I was young and I actively participated in the sport of basketball, every season, the first two weeks, uh, we would spend running. We didn't pick up a basketball. We just ran. And we ran. And we ran. It was called conditioning week. And it was the least fun of the whole of the whole season really but in thinking back on those times i think that there are three different kinds of people that might play basketball and they show up in those two weeks i think the, the there's the kind of people um who run hard until they're tired and then after that they kind of just give a half-hearted effort they don't really run hard after they get super tired then there are people who run hard until they're tired and then they keep giving everything. They keep running as hard as they can. It may not be as hard as it was at the beginning, but they keep giving it their all. Then the third type of person, I think, is that they are the kind of person that just does what everyone else is doing. What the majority of the other people are doing, these people do. And so when you have a team full of people who run and then give a half-hearted effort, you're probably not going to win very many games. Or even if you have a team full of people who just follow the majority, it's the same, going to be the same outcome. But, but if you have a team full of people who run, or even if you just have a few leaders on that team who run until they've got nothing left, but then they just keep running, that team is going to be motivated to follow those people And they're going to be able to withstand, I think, even the toughest opponent for the most part. Because when one teammate gets tired and wants to give up, they can look and see the tenacity of the others. And they're encouraged or spurred on, as the Bible would say, to keep going, to keep giving their all. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24, tells us that since Jesus has opened a new and better way for us to have access to God the Father, that we should draw near to God, hold fast to our hope in the faithful one, and then spur one another on to love and good works. So my prayer is that we are a team that when when one of us feels like giving up, we can look at any number of our other fellow believers or church members and be motivated to keep the faith and to keep working hard for the Lord. I believe this is part of how God is fixing this broken world that we live in by believers living out what they say they believe. So to repeat Solomon in verse 18 of our text this morning, I think it would be really good if we took hold of these truths today, so much so that our behaviors are changed by a fear of the Lord. And just to recap, the fear of the Lord as evidenced in a person's life, these five behavioral changes that would come with the fear of the Lord, they look like this. That person is humble. That person does not trust their own goodness or righteousness. That person doesn't trust their own wisdom. This kind of a person hates their own sin. And this person avoids fools and foolish behavior. Does that describe you today? I pray that it does, and I pray that it does more and more as we're found in Christ. Let's pray together. God, I, Lord, and we, I know, have so much to repent from. Lord, we ask for forgiveness from our passivity against sin in our own lives. Lord, we pray that you would root it out with your word that we know cuts deep, but it cuts true. And Lord, I pray that you would replace our wrong behaviors with God-fearing behaviors. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do this by ourselves because we can't. We never could. Not of good that we have done, Lord, but only by the blood of Jesus. You have given your own Son as the full payment for our sin and made it possible for us sinners to be made right with you, a holy God. Thank you, Lord, for putting this world back together. It may be slower than we like, but we know that you're doing it and we know that you're using your church as a part of that process. So may we join together in pursuing hard after you, Lord, following wherever you lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.